Hey, it's Coach Freddie here, inspiring people to do things that inspire them, and welcome to the iHemp Revolution, where we'll be discussing the benefits of growing and using industrial hemp for people, planet, and profit. Conversations about the history, legalization, farming, harvesting, processing, building, manufacturing, investing, and how industrial hemp can benefit people's lives, heal the planet, and how it can be used to make thousands of products and boost the economy and business. So, are you ready to join the iHemp Revolution? My guest today is Edgar Winters, owner of Natural Good Medicines, natural alternatives to a healthy lifestyle. Edgar believes that our natural environment and modern medicines need to work together. Edgar wants to provide people with the highest quality natural foods, supplements, stylish, eco-friendly clothing, all natural cosmetics, and homes built from sustainable hemp materials. Edgar is the CEO hemp specialist. He's the director of the Oregon Agricultural Food and Rural Consortium. He's a keynote speaker on industrial hemp, modern farming techniques, genetic variation breeding, cannabis sativa L, and cannabis indica hemp seed sampler, decortication and processing methods of hemp, building hemp with hemp-based products. So, Edgar, welcome to the iHemp Revolution. Coach Freddie, thank you so much for inviting me this morning. Oh, I'm glad to have you, and it was good meeting you in Washington, D.C. Yeah, we had a great time, didn't we? There's a lot of, lot of information floating around there. Yes, and hopefully, hopefully we uh, as influential and influence a few of the senators and congressmen back there. Well, I hope so. I hope we did. Uh, they seem like they were on board, but uh, we'll, we'll see in the end. Yes, yes. So, um, Edgar, can you give us a little bit more information about yourself and how you got started with uh, hemp? Yeah, I, I will. Um, I actually started uh, back in 1957. I, I'll be 65 this coming June. So back in 1957, I was around six, seven years old. Uh, my grandfather uh, grew hemp uh, for cordage. Uh, he was also a cotton farmer, so he would process the cotton, and then he would uh, make the cordage out of the hemp that he grew to tie up the cotton to take it to the gins. Uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. I thought I was planting corn. I didn't know the difference at that age. Uh, and then later on, about 13 or 14, in, my, in the 60s, I realized that my grandfather was growing the hemp, and I didn't really know it at the time. So that's where I first got started. And then uh, later on, I uh, I was in the service, and I was stationed in Spain, and I lived outside of Madrid, uh, a little town called Torrejon. And I dated a, a local girl there, and just so happens that her father and her grandfather were hemp growers, have been for 25 years. So I took an internship on my weekends and my days off, and I would go out and, and help them in the fields and uh, process the hemp there as well. Then I came back to America and, uh, in the 70s, and I've been trying to get hemp for a long time. And in Oregon, especially since 1994, I've been involved with getting industrial hemp back into Oregon. Uh, we passed it in 1998. Uh, nothing really happened at that time. And then uh, in 2008... Uh, we finally uh, understood that we really need the hemp program here in Oregon, so we're on board with that. And then uh, back in 2013, 
uh, I went to college for industrial hemp, uh, not, not because I didn't know anything about hemp, but I wanted to be certified by an institution that would give me more credence when I'm out there on the path as a foot soldier talking about industrial hemp. So I took the courses, and it was very, very intelligent um, teacher I had by Andrea Herman. I know we both know who Andrea is. Yes. Uh, so I, I took the course, and I really enjoyed it, and I used it to, to my benefit. And since then, uh, this is my second year of being a hemp farmer in Oregon, and we're scheduled uh, to do over 225 acres this year. So I, I'm looking forward to getting my hands in the dirt again for another following year of industrial hemp in Oregon. Well, that's fantastic. You have a great background. I love it. So and let's talk about, uh, you know, maybe some farming techniques just a little bit, but I would like to learn and have you speak about the uh, genetic variation, uh, the cannabis sativa L and cannabis indica. Can you kind of explain to people because I'm getting all kind of variations on that. Yeah, okay, I'd be more happy to do that. Uh, as you know, there's two different strains of cannabis. There's uh, cannabis sativa L, which is actually true hemp, Indian hemp. And then you have the, the marijuana end of the, the cannabis uh, distant cousin called cannabis sativa indica. So that is basically the psychoactive end of the cannabis, and the hemp is the non-psychoactive. So for the last 25 years, I've been... Uh, uh, breeding uh, medical marijuana in our state of Oregon to get certain strains for high CBDs for our medicine for our, our uh, patients here in Oregon. And at present, I have about 36 patients that we're uh, making CBD oils for. So I, I've been doing that uh, this past year, and I've combination. I'm trying to uh, do both. I'm trying to do both for the medical end and then also for the non-psychoactive end as far as the CBD contents. So what I do, I'll go in and I'll take a, a cultivar uh, that I like uh, in, the, in the hemp end of it. Um, I really prefer Diosis over uh, Monanesis because of the pollen count is a lot larger. Uh, diosis, you only have either the male or the female on the same plant. Whether if you're doing Monanesis type strains, you're going to have the male and the female on the same plant. So it is guaranteed they will get cross-pollinated without me doing it selectively. So what I do in my, in my research farm here in southern Oregon, Winter Fox Farms, I'll take pollen and I'll cross-pollinate different strains to try to come up with that perfect strain here for Oregon. Because right now in, in Oregon and in other states as well, we have no seed bank program. So we really don't have any seeds per se to, to work with. So uh, what I'm trying to do is get a get a climatized uh, strain here for Oregon for our longitude and latitude, so that each and every farmer here in Oregon will have a a choice between the strains of seeds that they could grow for. And there's basically four parts of the plant that we're going to be growing for, and and we need we need a good cultivar. So that's what I'm trying to do is establish a decent cultivar that will be viable not only for Oregon but for all the farmers in America in future dates. Now, now what are the different, uh, you said there was um, different uh, strains? Yes, yeah, the strains uh, right now in America, basically the only strains that we've been able to acquire is either from Europe, the EU, or from uh, uh, Canada. Canada is in a, in a position where they wanted to uh, give us seeds for our future crop, but there was a breeder rights 
uh, contract involved, and we haven't been able to negotiate that out yet at present. So in the meantime, most of the farmers in Oregon have been uh, using uh, American seeds. We haven't been using any European seeds or Australian seeds or, or, or Canada seeds. We've been using feral hemp seed that has been out in the fields in Illinois and Nebraska since the 1940s. Uh, it hasn't been watered. It hasn't been uh, uh, fed with any kind of fertilization. It's just been growing out there as, as ditch weed. So we've had a bunch of volunteers across the United States who've gone out and gathered these high-precious uh, uh, hemp seeds uh, that we once grew here in America in the 40s. So what we've done there is taken those hybrids and crossed them with my hybrids, and we've come up with a 0.3% THC content to uh, please the federal government and our state agencies under our Oregon Department of Agricultural Hemp Program. So we're in a, in a baby stage here, but uh, at our institute, we're trying to come up with different strains that are Americanized, not European, because you have to realize the European strains are all past the 45th parallel. Oregon is at the only 42nd, 43rd parallel, so uh, those strains are not really viable for, for our climate at present. So you're going to have to climatize those seeds for a period of two to three years to get them more viable to be uh, more yield. So what we decided to do is just to use our own American seed strains that we have here, and what few handfuls we have we've taken and we've actually accumulated uh, tonnage of seeds all across the uh, United States now so that uh, local farmers can have American seeds. So that's what I'm very much involved with now and in Colorado and in Kentucky and Vermont as well. Okay. Now, now were you involved in Colorado doing some of the, because uh, I know some of the farmers just went out and got, uh, you know, the the seeds and they're, they're starting to uh, work with those and uh, uh, work with their own cultivars and crop uh, pollinating those yes sir i am involved with that uh i i we own a consulting firm as well so uh the colorado clan in in, in colorado have called me out on numerous occasions to be a part of their hemp program through consulting work through farming practices and and acquiring seeds so yeah i was involved with 60 acres in colorado last year and uh, we were very successful we were too successful to be honest with you uh the strain that we used was so good that it grew to be 15 feet tall and when we took our combines in we were having trouble uh processing it because the the combines machines would get uh, clogged up with oil from all the hemp stalks. So, uh, yes, I am involved uh, a lot with the Colorado uh, evolution of, of hemp. And, and the strains that we've been working with now have been done for two years. This, this year will be our third year, and now we'll have a, a strain that will be climatized not only for Colorado but for the rest of the U.S. if they're interested in buying some of those seeds. Uh, yes, and, and I talked to a gentleman in, I think it was Kentucky, and he was saying seeds should be priced where it's viable for the farmer and not gouging them. He said a lot of yeah. people are out there selling these seeds, that, and the farmers really can't afford to pay that premium yeah. price. And he no. said they should be down around where, where corn is. Uh, you know, I don't know what this, that's a 15 20 $30 a pound where some people are charging $100, $300 a pound. Up to $1,500 a pound on certain cultivars in America, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I can elaborate quite a bit on on that price gouging. Uh, The problem is we don't have any seeds, uh, that many seeds in America. So uh, what local farmers have had been successful, 
uh, speaking for Colorado and Kentucky here, uh, they I paid a dear price. They paid anywhere from twenty to twenty-five dollars a pound to plant last year's crop of, of the seeds, and that is extremely high. I know I've been getting seeds from the EU, and their average price is around nine dollars, nine eighty a pound plus shipping and handling. So it brings it up to maybe twelve dollars a pound. But here in in America, if you can get seeds for under twenty dollars a pound, American seeds, you consider yourself very lucky. But I would be very leery of of acquiring those seeds because we don't really know what strains they are, and we don't know the history of those seeds. So, as you said, people are out there gouging the local farmer, you know, we're from twenty to sixty dollars up to fifteen hundred dollars a pound for their crop. So what I go around and telling all these farmers, because I have to order those seeds as well. We don't have enough seeds in Oregon to supply all of our farmers. So I'm I'm thankful that I was involved with the Colorado clan in doing this. Uh, really, seeds should be around seven fifty eight dollars a pound here in America. They shouldn't be any more than that after next year. Uh, but right now. You're going to pay that upfront cost of $20 and above only for one time. Now, a lot of our farmers are growing for seed for future planting, like here in Oregon. What should the price of seeds be for the farmer? It should be at least comparable to the EU prices, the European Union prices. Uh, They average anywhere from $9 to $15 a pound. And I don't see why after a year or two of growing hemp seeds here in America... We couldn't exactly uh, beat that price, and and do it for seven fifty to eight dollars, eight fifty nine bucks at the most per pound for really good cultivars. That that makes a lot more sense than one hundred and fifty dollars a pound. That's for sure, and I, I don't. A lot of farmers, like we talked about earlier, can't really afford that. They have to go out and borrow the money to buy the seeds to plant the crop, hoping that they would have a yield and be successful. Now, most farmers, they don't like having to operate under those circumstances. They would like to be able to get their seed at a very reasonable price and then hope to have a good yield. But uh, in this business, we're in a uh, we're in a volatile area, so uh, it's a new technology from an old time, and we're just trying to get back involved with it again here in America. So you had something here, uh, hemp seed sampler, uh, field plots. What, what's that about? Well, uh, when I went to college there at OSU for industrial hemp, uh, I've been a seed variation uh, sampler for the for the marijuana end on our medical side here in, in Oregon for the last 18 years. So uh, there's no difference between the ways the seeds form in cannabis than they do in, in uh, hemp. So it's basically the same type of uh, uh, procedure. So I... Uh, I went and learned how to be a a hemp seed sampler by going to college there, and I I wanted to go out and do my own seed sampling. So what better person to be out in the field checking on their yield than the farmer that is growing it? Well, here in Oregon, the Department of Agriculture has their own hemp seed samplers, So, and they want to charge us $92 an hour with a minimum of four hours to come out to seed sample our strains of hemp to see if we're under the guidelines of 0.3% THC level. So I end up having this last year paying the Department of Agriculture over $3,000 just for them to come out and look to see if my seeds were under that THC content. Uh, I was hoping I could do it, but uh, for some reason or another, the Department of Agriculture in Oregon 
they're unionized when it comes to, uh, to seed samplers. So any seed sampler, whether it be straw or hay or wheat or hemp or whatever, the Department of Agriculture already has that inside job. So we have to pay that price. So I feel that's gouging as well because in Colorado, we only have to pay $35 to have the Department of Agriculture come out and test our THC content. So, you know, it, it varies from state to state, and I think we need to get a more uniform, uh, even playing field when it comes to seed sampling as well. Yes, I, I was not aware of that. I've, I've heard of people coming out testing, but I didn't know what they were called. So seed, hemp seed sampler. That's okay. correct. Uh-huh. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about decortication and, and processing methods for hemp. Okay. Explain a little bit, first of all, for our audience, decortication. What is that? Uh, decortication is a term that we use uh, in the hemp business to separate the bass fiber from the herds, which are the center part of the stalk of the hemp plant. Uh, and in America, per se, we used to have decortication machines back in the 20s to the 40s, but we have no decortication, very little in America today. Only a few companies that can afford it have went out and bought some equipment or actually have remodified some old equipment to do our decortication here in America. Uh, so we're back to basically like the Chinese do. We still got to do it by hand and by combines and, and make makeshift types of decortication. We are wanting to invest and get some decortication machines in America because it's going to take at least two to four in every state. And right now, those decortication machines are not cheap. They are extremely high. Uh, I'll give you, for instance, uh, in Australia... They have a, a TCI makes a, a decorticator, uh, the HD1, and it uh, goes in the field behind a tractor, and it takes the hemp stalks down and windrows them, then you pick it up. And that's $150,000 plus shipping um, freight. Uh, by the time you're done, you're going to pay $200,000 to get that machine here. Plus, they make another one that's actually larger that is actually for industrial uh, grade that stays inside a warehouse. And it does up to a, a four ton, fifteen ton, matter how, however much you can actually feed into the machine. And what it does, that decorticator, you'll take the stalks and you'll run it down at the top of the machine. And on the left side, uh, it will decorticate the bass fiber from the herds. It would take the bass fiber to the left. It will send the the herds down the middle. And then on the right side, your short fiber will fall off. And also, this machine will dry. The, the herds or the green plant, if you're doing it green, it will dry it uh, automatically on the spot because when you cut down a hemp plant, uh, it automatically becomes uh, methane gas. The herds start to have a gas uh, gasification process, and uh, you really have to dry the, the, the lignin uh, away from, from that as well. So... Some of the decortication machines are very uh, rudimental, and some of them are very advanced. So uh, in America, we're way behind. We were dependent on people that could not come out and decorticate your uh, hemp field because there's just not enough of it. So we're really working diligently in trying to get some decortication machines here in Oregon. Uh, I know other states have have 
a similar program. I'm not privy at the time on what they're actually in, investigating on, but uh, decortication is a very big processing problem that we're having, and we need to address it because most farmers come up to me and say, Edgar, uh, if I plant this hemp, am I going to be able to get it processed? And uh, and, and you know it's a it's a great question. You know you don't want your local farmer producing tons and tons of fiber, but yet he couldn't get it decorticated for processing to be on the open market for sale. So it is a big problem, and and uh, I'm working more on the processing end since of my age at 65 here. I can't really get out there in those fields and do eight ten hours like I used to. So I'm going to uh, divert back and and be more on the processing end and try to help uh, our local farmers here in in Oregon. And, and across the United States, because we've got about 30, 32 states now that are wanting to do hemp, uh, and I really want to be a part of helping them get that processing equipment here in America. Well, what about some of the companies uh, that build machines uh, in, in Iowa? Uh, what, uh it's it's very it's very simple. Uh, I look at all these machines all across the world, and all I see is John Deere, Massey Ferguson. Uh, all the American tractor companies that have built these machines. So I, I, we could do it right here in America as well. All these companies that are making these machines for, for Europe and, and for Australia and all these other countries, they could be doing the same thing right here. I know Canada makes a lot of good equipment using American uh, tractors. So uh, I don't know what the big what the big issue is here. I think it's uh, uh, greed and, and only certain individuals who have the monies want to get in on the program, it's going to leave a lot of small farmers and mid-sized farmers out in the cold without any processing whatsoever. So we need to really sit down and discuss our processing and decortication to great lengths to, to get a program more sustainable here in America. Now, what about the uh, the co-op method of uh, having one of these decoders, uh, you know, that you have a bunch of small uh, farmers and yep. they use the same machine for everything? But they don't own it. That's that's correct, and there are a few of those out there. But if if we were to start with just a few of those co-ops, it would be two and a half years before they got around to you to get yours processed. So your field is not going to set for two and a half years for you waiting on a decorticator to come process your imp for you. So uh, a co-op is a, is a good way to go about it. I know I'm working with a co-op here in Oregon with four different farmers and myself, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. I'm trying to copy a version just like uh, they do in Australia and New Zealand. It's called a hemp village, mm -hmm. and it is actually a co-op, so to speak. In other words, the field is there. The processing mills are right there. The retail outlets are there at the same community. So everybody gets in together as a community co-op, and we swap different parts of the plants for different parts of uh, machinery to be used in all of the co-ops. I would love to see that happen more often. Uh, the problem is when you go into co-ops, you're, you're getting involved with several different entities, and sometimes those entities do not see eye to eye, and your marriage could actually f uh, fall apart within the first couple of months because you're not really sure of your your people that you're involved with. So the first thing you need to do is to be on board with the right combination of community leaders that oversees and sees the big picture about how we need to collaborate more instead of uh, going our own way. And making sure that everybody's on the right page. 
Yeah, and that, that is a problem at first, especially when we're in, into a technology that that uh, the local farmers is just not really keen on yet. They're still learning as we speak. So I find our consulting firm uh, staying extremely busy these days just by going out into the fields and, and teaching farmers uh, the right way of, of doing this because I want them to be successful because if they're successful – uh, our companies are going to be successful. I don't want anyone to fail in this in this program that we're trying to get started here, uh, because it is a new technology and and uh, an old crop. So we want to we want to make sure that we are successful. Exactly. So uh, from the decortication and processing, I'd like to get into building uh, with hemp-based products and the hemp houses, mm-hmm. tiny homes. Yeah, the tiny homes. I'm interested. I'm going to build a tiny hemp house. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm also involved with that as well. I, uh, I'm actually making tiny homes, going to be making tiny homes out of hemp, uh, actually on wheels. They're not going to be stable. In other words, you'll hook it up to your SUV and you'll go on down to Mexico and you'll park it. And that's, that's what you'll stay in while you're down on the beach. That's what I'm involved with. I, I really want to do uh, tiny homes on wheels. And I've already got a patent on a couple already that I'm working on. And um, I can't wait to to get all those herds grown here in America because right now I have to buy those herds. That's one of the main products in the ingredients of making Hemp Creek is the herds, the center part of the stalk. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a, a shortage and uh, we can't get a lot of them. So I can't wait for most of the, all the American farmers to start growing it so we can have a big uh, amount of volumes of herds so that we could build a lot more homes out of because uh, technically they're eco-friendly uh, the r factor is probably twice more than what a piece of wood or concrete would do for you and it breathes and it's also biodegradable so i'm really into the hemp building end of it uh, i i want to to explore it a lot more but like i say i i, I can't do everything so i, I have to dedicate uh, a lot of these uh, processes to other people, and I do know that there's a lot of people that are very interested in in hemp homes, such as yourself. Yes, I, I was with a um, with John Patterson um, just, uh-huh. just a week a week or so yeah. ago at, yeah. at his workshop. Yeah, he's a, he's a talented guy. Maybe I'll have a bunch of them all over the states. So when I go someplace and visit, I can stay at my hemp house. There you go. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? So, Edgar, you've been a, a wealth of knowledge here for us, and um, I know that we can continue this uh, and maybe even do a few more later on. But I'd love to come up to Oregon there and visit you, and uh, maybe we'll do that on a, uh, our second leg of the hemp road trip. Hey, I talked to the, some of the guys back there in Washington, D.C., and they were planning on coming to Oregon. So I, I'd like to give you an open invitation to be more, ha- more than welcome to come to Oregon and let you see what our Oregon farmers are up against here in growing industrial hemp because we are an all-cannabis state. So we're, we're getting a lot of slack last year from the, from the medical marijuana end as well. Uh, on to do of cross pollination, but we've we've kind of proved a point there this past year that if you do good farming practices, uh, it won't be a problem uh, of cross pollination. And I'll go into detail with anyone who would like to contact our offices and explain a little bit more in detail. I know we don't have the time to do it today, right. but uh, I, I'm sure I would love to be on your show again, and maybe we could talk about that. Oh, that'd be fantastic because people are, you know, the farmers especially are interested in that. So yeah, I, I speak about that a lot to the farmers. Okay, well, super. Well, Edgar, I'm gonna I'm gonna thank you 
very much for being a guest on the IHAMP Revolution. I have enjoyed it. I, I know this has been going on for uh, a few weeks. I just didn't realize uh, how I could be involved, but I do appreciate you for reaching out to me. And if I could help in any shape, fashion, or form with industrial hemp in America, uh, I'd be more happy to, to be on your show again. And right now, I'd like to leave that I'm actually working with uh, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is wanting to do hemp. I have some liaisons, associates over there right now trying to set up a program to come over and, and teach those folks on how to do help. Well, I want to be part of that because I don't know if you knew it or not, but I'm the director of the Caribbean Hemp Association, and my world headquarters is in St. Thomas, the U.S. Virgin oh, Islands. I did know that. I, I, didn't, re I didn't realize uh, until you mentioned it to me again, but that'd be great because you're pretty close. You're not too far from Puerto Rico. Uh, yeah. If you do uh, find that they're really seriously uh, involved, please, please let me know, and I'd be more happy to help you uh, get oh. that program going. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. So we'll talk about that uh, at a later date. For sure. So I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today and make sure that you subscribe to the IHAMP Revolution podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio and give us a review and follow us on Facebook.com forward slash IHAMP Revolution and like us and just tell your friends. Help spread the word about how using industrial hemp can benefit people, heal the planet, and provide long-term profit. So this is your host, Coach Freddie, inspiring people to do things that inspire them. And thanks for joining the IHEMP Revolution.